What's going on, wine lovers? You're probably like, what's going on, Keith Beavers? Well, I am here to tell you that this is not a Wine 101 episode today. Today, I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you guys about a brand new podcast that we just launched at VinePair. It's called Cocktail College. Every week, senior staff writer at VinePair, Tim McCurdy, takes a deep dive into a classic cocktail with a bartending luminary. If you dig the history and stuff we bring out at Wine 101, wait till you hear about the classic cocktails you know and love. It's about history. It's about technique, how to build these cocktails the right way with people that really know how to do it. I get to produce this show and I love it so much. So today we're going to share the first episode of Cocktail College, The Old Fashioned. So listen to it, love it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it. Go on Google, search Vine Pears Cocktail College Podcast. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Senior staff writer for Vine Pear, Tim McCurdy. Take it away, my friend. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The Old Fashioned might not lay claim to the title of world's oldest cocktail, but its influence on modern mixology and its place in popular culture is unquestionable. Put simply, in today's world, any bartender worth their salt has to have perfected the Old Fashioned. Today, we're gonna learn how to do that with Eric Alperin, best known as the co-owner of The Varnish in LA, a bar he opened in 2009 with his mentor, the late Sasha Petrosky. Beyond ingredients, ratios, and building techniques, we're gonna explore things like the importance of ice, the overlap of theater and mixology, and why this drink, more than any other, is so closely tied to the revival of cocktail culture. We'll also hear from Eric about how he schooled one of Hollywood's biggest names on how to make the old fashioned, which culminated in what is perhaps the best cocktail creation scene in cinematic history. Do you know which one we're talking about? Buckle up, listener. We're about to find out. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. The right bourbon can elevate your next cocktail into an experience worth savoring. So look for a brand that doesn't overlook the details and sets the standard for bourbon. That's Knob Creek. It's truly the real deal. An authentic, classic line of American whiskeys with proofs ranging from 100 to 120. Knob Creek is aged longer to produce a full flavor experience as rich and deep as its history. With every drop, you notice the attention to detail Knob Creek puts into its bourbon. So strive for a little more substance, because when you choose to go deeper, you'll find so much more to appreciate. Eric Alperin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Tim. Thanks for having me on this uh, inaugural journey. Uh, I think this is uh, number one, right? This is number one, and I'm looking forward to taking these these first steps with you in the in the audio land. We will we will bravely go together. It's a it's a I'm gonna say it's a fairly daunting one out there for you. Um, you know, we're going to talk the old fashioned today. And 
I think you can say what you want about this cocktail, right? But this is this is a very iconic drink and also emblematic of the of the kind of process uh, the the progress we've made sorry in the past 20 years in in cocktail culture. So we're kicking off with that one. How do you feel about that today? Well, I I I feel jittery but honored at the same time. What's so interesting about this is the old fashioned is the definition that was first communicated in the uh, the balance in Columbia Colombian repository that that uh, those articles in 1806 and that uh, little Hudson New York newsletter saying that a uh, cocktail was uh, liquor uh, composed of spirits of any kind sugar water and bitters mm-hmm. um, so the old fashioned when I started learning about classic cocktails after a few different uh, bar jobs in New York City I ended up um, uh, with Sasha at uh, Little Branch, mm-hmm. and um, you know the the old fashioned was was uh, one of the first I had to had to learn, and it's it is so simple, yet mm-hmm. just like a cappuccino, so many people fuck it up. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you'd think you have uh, bitters, sugar, um, uh, liquor like bourbon or rye. Uh, and a garnish, and you'd think that'd be easy enough, but um, all the space in between, like the process of that, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's really easy to to serve up a train wreck. So I'm I'm honored yet confident that uh, I can I can share with you my version. That's fantastic, and I hope that the, the listeners will forgive me here because you've really kind of laid out the foundations wonderfully there, right? Like the the, the old fashioned is the template for the original cocktail. I I kind of want to skip a lot of history. I know that a lot of kind of modern mixology is looking into the past. And I do want to look into the past, but I don't want to go that far back. I think for the purposes of this, I really want to talk about the era when you were starting, because I think that that is, you know, kind of where the, the, the modern old-fashioned story begins, and I'd love to hear about that. And I'd also love to hear it from a perspective of, I wasn't there in New York or LA at that time, so I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, what it was actually like, and, and, and how important was the old-fashioned then? Is it as we kind of see it today with the hindsight of 20 years or so? Well, I have to say, um, interestingly enough, uh, the cocktail that first got me into this business was the cosmopolitan. And, um, that's because my first job was on, um, on the leading edge of Tribeca at a place called the screening room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, that whole area because of Toby Cicchini and mm-hmm. the Odeon was just every, every cocktail list had a, had a cosmopolitan on it. Mm-hmm. So I was slinging cosmos for years at this place uh, with sour mix from the gun, splash of cranberry, absolute citron. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was uh, it was wonderful. And what and what atro- year are we atrocious. talking about? Oh, we're talking um, we're talking basically like ninety nine till two thousand and two. And so I was slinging cosmos um, uh, like you wouldn't believe. And um, finally, I, I, I went, you know, I worked at the place called The Screening Room. I, I did a little nightclub bartending, ended up at, um, at uh, 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 Lupa, Osteria, 
mm-hmm. uh, in, in New York and, and started working with Amaro's and stuff. But it wasn't until I got to uh, Sasha Petrosky's Little Branch where that was my Kool-Aid moment. And um, some of my early lessons were were how to make and perfect the old fashioned. So what I'm going to share with you today is not something that I invented or or a, necessarily a process that I came up with on my own. It's mm-hmm. um, it's it's shared through many people that worked through the milk and honey family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in New York, for me, it was it was training ground. It was definitely a training ground for uh, for classics. I mean, we're you know the ingredients we were using, glassware, um, the, the the specific sugar cubes, uh, domino dot sugar cubes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know how to peel, how to peel that orange peel, making sure that you didn't have too much pith on the bottom. Um, uh, using block ice, so it was very very process oriented, and mm-hmm. um, and again that was my training ground in New York City. Uh, and then after I moved to LA to, um, you know, to, to open up a, a West coast version of a milk and honey bar. That's what Sasha and I had, uh, had agreed to do. Um, it, it just caught on like wildfire, uh, in Los Angeles. It kind of became almost as popular as, as, as how the cosmopolitan was ordered back in, in its heyday. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have men and women and all, all walks of life were going out and just like ordering old fashions, um, you know, four old fashioned, six old fashions. I mean, it was just such an easy <laughs> order to make over a bar. I just and and it 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 always makes me laugh because at the varnish when we opened, it was it was one of the most popular drinks that we could, you know, that we could track on our P mix. They're like, wow, there's a lot of old fashions that we sold uh, this last month. And it was the same and, thing at other bars. So and, uh, I, why 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 do you think the old fashioned? I mean, I. I maybe have an idea. I think this came later, though, so I I, I want to hear your opinion first. But there, there's some there's a link that a lot of people make. But it, why do you think the old fashioned did kind of take off in that way? Why did it take off in that way? I mean, I think there was such a there was so much glee around the idea of of classic cocktails, and I think at the varnish because of our process and and the block ice that we used, people were just really turned on by. By a, a big a big rock of ice in in their drink, and also to be honest, an old fashioned doesn't take that long to make. Um, so uh, yeah, I think some people just cut on that they could probably get an old fashioned pretty quickly. What is yours? I, I'm very curious. What is what is your uh, link? So I'll 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 tell you the one that I hear a lot that's tied back to mixology and i want to say something as well by the way so mixology i know that that term by the way there's there's some derision there people people don't like it that term actually dates back to the 19th century um totally. i've written an article about this in vine pair a while ago you can search it but i just want to say like that might make some people's kind of skin crawl a little bit hearing that word but that is just as old as the old-fashioned almost so this is a safe space i for I, I don't mixology. Dis- I, I totally don't disagree with you tim I just mm-hmm. think there was a period, and I didn't have such yep. disdain as others did. I just think there was a period where it was being used in such a way where, like, well, you just sound like an idiot. Yeah. What are you mixologizing behind the bar? It's like, no. So <laughs> I think of it. I think of it in two ways, and I, I really don't press this on anyone. Mm-hmm. But like, bartending is a craft. It's a trade. It's an honest trade. Mm-hmm. And when you're behind the bar, you are tending the bar. So you are a bartender. Now, mm-hmm. if you are 
on off hours or you are doing some R&D and like trying to come up with different sir, uh, syrups and process and, and like uh, uh, like systems and the bar and how to work it. And, and you're, you know, uh, you're, 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 uh, you're cryovacking something. I mean, I think then yeah. you could think of that as more mixology. Yeah. Um, but to me, when you're bartending behind the bar, you're, you're a fucking bartender. Yeah. Um, and, well, and my background you... is in the kitchen and, you know, you know, molecular gastronomy wankers. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I that's not for me, you know, molecular, not, <laughs> cook, not even a chef. Do you know what I mean? So, or it was anyway, we do digress a little bit here. So to uh, so bring us back on track, I, th- I think the link that gets made a lot is mad men. And that's oh, really sure. interesting to me because you talked about the Cosmo there, right? And mm-hmm. people talk about Sex in the City, but the Cosmo was huge before Sex in the City. And the old-fashioned, to hear your timeline, I don't think Mad Men aired until 2007 or something like that. But that mm-hmm. is the link that always gets made. And I think that's... And this is why we're having this conversation, because I think things get forgotten in time or we put events together that were actually like more spread apart. So I was interested to hear whether you would make that link. I um, absolutely would. I And you know what? You're, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. I am in Tinseltown. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I completely agree. Kind of slipped mm-hmm. my mind, but you're absolutely right that uh, television movies can take something and even put it on a greater plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're right. The Cosmo was around. People were drinking them. But uh, as soon as, as it, it ended up on Sex in the City or you know, somebody saw Madonna drinking it, it took it to another level. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, that is a, uh, I think, just in the world I was in and opening the varnish, that was a big step in celebrating classics and, yep. uh, and old fashions and block ice and fresh ingredients. All that was super important to the varnish, but also uh, Mad Men. I mean, yeah. Mad Men was a big deal. And, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to share something that I, I, I know we talked about, but, you know, I, I helped, I, I coached um, a couple actors, but primarily one actor for, yeah, a role in in a in a show, in a film and can, can I stop you for a second? Yeah, for sure. Because before before you say this, and I I, I think this deserves something of a bigger build up here, and mm. I will preface this by saying, so I was on YouTube last night, right? And I'm looking at the old fashioned that was made in Mad Men. It's not a very good one. Mm. He's he's using overhaul whatever that might be a product placement or you know and I'm sure that was a great drink but if, if you do look back at it you're like yeah it was probably a good cocktail but it wasn't a brilliant one now the the old fashioned that you inspired is possibly one of the best cocktails I've seen made on the big screen so I think that you were about to go into that without doing it maybe as much just justice as it deserves. So please do carry on. But I just wanted for the listeners to, 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 to know there that, you know, you were, you were just going to slip that in as if it was a kind of side comment. This, this was a big deal. Well, okay. Thanks, Tim. Um, I can't help but be humble in these situations because the varnish did attract all walks of life. It also attracted a lot of Hollywood types. Um, I'm really glad that in this in this particular movie. And I'll tell you in a second that it was well shot, well executed, but mm-hmm. I really have to give credit to the actor who was, was a friend at the time. Um, he would come to my bar and with his pals and um, he asked me if I would help train him on two cocktails because he had this movie coming up uh, where he wanted to improv 
He had a scene mm -hmm. with this actress improv making a cocktail for her. So this was his acting idea. And coming from an acting background, I was like, oh, dude, that's so cool. Uh, mm -hmm. So this guy is, is, is none other than, than Ryan Gosling. Uh, he used to live downtown. So he, he, uh, he spent a lot of time in the varnish haunt. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. But it was all self-generated. It wasn't in the script. Uh, mm -hmm. from what I understand. And he just wanted to learn how to make two cocktails. So I basically taught him how to make a, an old fashioned and um, a honeysuckle, which is a, a honey daiquiri, mm -hmm. um, because uh, he, he was a fan of both of those cocktails. But here's the thing is that we did spend so much time on on process and you know, not to get nerdy about being an actor but he, he was just so method about it he just came in and he would you know we did some stuff off hours and then a little bit during service when it was light he would jump back there i mean he, he became friends with so much of the staff mm -hmm. um but yeah he he would either be watching the bartenders work or when there was a moment he would come back there and he would make it himself and mm -hmm. he just repeated it over and over and over again and I remember we had a couple sessions at his house where he had some of us over and he would make drinks for everyone. Uh, so I think the reason why it landed so well on the screen is basically mm -hmm. he was just a student of yeah. this, this simple cocktail, which uh, gets screwed up so many times. Like it's like a cappuccino, you know, <laughs> really you go order a cappuccino and you're like, wow, how could he fuck up a cappuccino? Well, let me tell you, there are a lot of ways to fuck it up. Mm -hmm. Um, just like the old fashioned, but, um, but mm -hmm. yeah, so, so that experience with Ryan and the movie was crazy, stupid love. Um, that was really special just for Go me. check it um, out. The, the scene yeah. is on YouTube. It's a, it's a wonderful scene. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, I, I definitely recommend it to everyone. And like I said, um, watch that. It's a sexy scene. I mean, it's it, a really, it's really, really well scene. shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really well shot. And and, and how uh, much do you think then, like, you know, you're, you're kind of, you, you mentioned that he was a friend and again, this is, this is a slight detour here, but so I've read your book and, and again, like I, I would urge people to go out there and read your book as well, because I think it's a really great approach and a different way of kind of writing about drinks. Um, and oh, thanks, man. I, yeah, no, I think I, I, I genuinely enjoyed it. I, I got it over the pandemic and I think. So learning about your experience as an actor kind of, and I, I think you mentioned in there too, that your time working with Sasha Petrasky, almost acting came into the, the art of bartending, the kind of the way you set yourself up. So exactly the same thing that Ryan Gosling might have done kind of studying you guys, you guys were almost like you, you were there every night. That's your scene. It feels like that is part of the way that you approach your craft. Hundred um, percent. I uh, I do come from a theater background. That's what I went to college for. Um, and uh, I, I I believe that every night at the bar is is live theater. Um, and uh, in unvarnished, uh, which is in print, is the name of the book. Is the name of the book. <laughs> That's good. It's quite <laughs> unvarnished. Published by Harper Collins Harper Wave. There's also an audio book. If You've made it this far on the podcast and you actually can stand my voice, then get the audiobook because <laughs> it's me doing the audiobook. Um, but, but yeah, uh, hospitality, bars, restaurants, it's theater. Mm -hmm. And um, that has always been, uh, it's been a North Star for me. It's been a driving force. Like, I'm not 
and, and I do appreciate, but I'm not the cocktail historian. Mm-hmm. I'm not nerding out. Um, and I love the word nerd, by the way. So I'm a nerd in many, many ways. We're going to get to that. But I'm not like the history nerd. Or mm-hmm. let's find how many variations uh, on this particular recipe, this particular cocktail, how many recipe variations are there? I'm, I'm not that. Uh, I think you'll see, and it's represented in the book because there are these 115 cocktails every bartender must know before they start, you know, uh, they have to before they have to kind of have those in their mind and committed to memory and understand the process before they start their first solo shift uh, behind the bar at the varnish. So um, I am much more of a process movement, um, how we care for our guests, how we execute drinks kind of nerd. Um, and uh, so much of that is rooted in, in my cater education. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because things like, mise en place and working from left to right, working from cheapest ingredients, uh, going and going, building on top of that, you know, Mm -hmm. are we serving what side of the guest are we serving on? Like, you know, when we carry a tray, uh, and it's a bunch of empty glasses, then we blow the candle out. If there's a bunch of new cocktails on there, freshly shaken up and stirred cocktails, we light the candles so everybody can see them as we walk through the room. Um, like all these details to me are, are very much rooted in theater. And I think with this drink in particular, and because, you know, the, the old fashioned, it's, as you mentioned at the top, it's, it's few ingredients, which means there's little, there's little room to hide, right? You, you need to know how to make this drink, but, and I think that's why it also worked so well in that scene and probably also really took off in the early 2000s as we've we've spoken about because to watch someone make that if you've never had a proper cocktail made for you before and to see those those small actions carried out very intentionally that that ties into this conversation for me and i I, and i think that's why it's important that we're speaking about these things too because yes let's let's now dive into into those components but those things those external factors are all in the final drink aren't they in the experience yeah absolutely um i think consistency is so important in cocktails and you know i've always said that (laughs) to young bartenders that who are always trying to come up with their the next modern classic it's like hey guys can you make for example the 115 that are in unvarnished can you make those a thousand times over Mm-hmm. Like, like through that process, there is so much attention to detail and creative moments to be had. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so ab- ab- absolutely. It's all the space in between of these simple, simple steps that are strung together. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think like when you have a recipe, um, as descriptive as it can be, and I think this is important to, to why we're here, Tim, is like, sure, I can, you can read a recipe, even in unvarnished, if you went right to the center and just read like the recipes, you, you'd, you'd be able to get all the ingredients you need. Um, I think the narrative does intersperse into a lot of the stories because it's more of a, you know, it has memoir moments. It has, it has uh, uh, moments about just like the, the ins and outs of being in the bar uh, and, and the industry and building bars. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think just a recipe, we miss so much of the breath and the space in between. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you throw a sugar cube into that nine ounce glass, now I'm just going to walk you through kind of like the, the recipe for our old fashioned yeah. at the varnish. But you have like you got a nine ounce glass, like 
nine ounce. That's really important to us. Now, sure, you can use a, a larger glass if that's all you have at home. But, you know, for us, it's what will fit um, our our particular rocks of ice. And we have block ice. And mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, two and a half inches tall by uh, an inch and three quarters on uh, uh, wide and long and uh, on each wide and deep. Mm-hmm. And so we choose the glass specifically. Then what is the sugar cube that we're dropping in there? We're dropping in a domino dot sugar cube. Sasha was such an advocate of the right amount of sugar in an old fashioned. And we always did it with sugar cubes. And domino dot, the way they cut the sugar loaf is smaller than what they do with like a CNH um, uh, sugar cubes. Now, listen, I'm not saying that I like Domino Dot and the amount of sugar in that particular cut of the sugar loaf uh, mm-hmm. compared to the CNH. So I agree with Sasha, and that's what we do in house. Other places don't; they use the CNH, and they're a bit bigger. But those details really matter. So then you're throwing mm-hmm. in that Domino Dot sugar cube, and uh, and then hitting it with uh, with Angostura bitters. And we use uh, a Japanese bitters bottle because when you when you look at recipes, a lot of the time it doesn't talk about how bitters come out of a traditional bitters bottle. Jeez. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's the same thing with knives in the kitchen, man. I mean, there's a certain knife to cut fish. Otherwise you're going to hack the meat up. Right. Yep. Right. And 100%. there's a certain way, way to go about, like, I'm just speaking because I have friends who are in kitchens and I've watched this a lot, but, um, all those, the way you slice the angle, are you going long ways or, 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 or short ways on, on the meat? Uh, it's also important. So again, Angostura bitters for us lives in a Japanese bitters bottle. And the way that Japanese bitters bottle is shaped is that it has, um, you know, it's, it's bulbous at the bottom. And then it has this, uh, this piston Mm -hmm. that the bitters fly through and then go through this particular dasher that, um, that basically shoots out three, when you shoot out three dashes from a Japanese bitters bottle, that is, and I think we have Don Lee and Alex Day to thank for this, for, you know, their, their, uh, their research on what yep. a perfect dash is, but um, <laughs> that is um, uh, that is one dash. So three dashes from a Japanese bitters bottle is one one dash. If you can get it correctly from an Angostura bottle. Now the thing about Angostura bottles is that you know when when it's full and you do a dash, it's too full. So you didn't get the right dash, but and then there's a point in the bitters bottle where there's enough air. And enough liquid where you get the right dash, but it can be, it can it can be really uh, 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 hazardous if you have not enough bitters in the bottle, and you go and you do a dash, and then turning the bottle over all of a sudden just creates too much force, and all of a sudden you put in too much bitters into the bottom of your glass. So that's why um, we use the Japanese bitters bottles for consistency in the dashing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after we've dashed bitters, which is um, RSP. So you say three. You said yeah. You said three dashes so, on the Japanese is one. Uh, one traditional dash. One traditional, and you go for in your recipe. Therefore, we go for about eight, eight to nine. It depends. About eight to nine. You want like two and a half dashes. Um, okay. Yeah. So it just yeah. So usually about eight mm-hmm. is uh, so that would be just about just a good uh, healthy two and a half dashes, uh, and then from there. And I know this is an off with my head moment, but um, I uh, and we were taught just to do a bar spoon of um, club soda mm-hmm. um, or seltzer. But it just I use a disced bar spoon. Uh, you know, the disc bar spoon. That's the only way I know how to describe it. But it has the disc at the bottom. 
Yes. And it twirls on the stem, and then you have the the bar spoon. What's that portion. for? Well, this is this is what I use it for. Is that you can muddle with that disc, and it's perfect for making old fashioned because oh, once you do okay, a bar yeah. spoon, you do a bar spoon of. Um, I also think it's for layering. You know, mm-hmm. it's for layering on top of of drinks, but for the old fashioned, you do you do a bar spoon of. Um, of the seltzer club soda. And of course, when you're putting that onto the bar spoon, you always want to work away from the glass. So if you screw it up or some spills over, it spills on the counter or in the well, as right. opposed to into the drink. You get that bar spoon in there uh, of club soda, and then you flip over that spoon and you use the disc to muddle the um, bitters, uh, domino dot sugar cube and the club mm-hmm. soda into a paste. Now, really, you don't need to have a, a really big bar spoon of club soda, just enough to create a paste. And I think that's a really important part um, of the uh, of the old fashioned. So you just you get that into a paste. You don't need to use a, a muddler. I think it's so much uh, so much more elegant too to use the disc bar spoon to spin it around. And also, it's one less step. We're talking about these things, right? Intentional actions. It's one less thing to clean. One less it's thing one to less, pick up. Exactly. Economy of movement, one less thing to clean, one less thing to pick up. You actually look pretty baller. I call that stuff micro flare. We're like, whoa, oh, and he just flipped <laughs> it over. And now he's like, now he's muddling. You know, I, I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, Nicholas St. Jean, Nicholas St. Jean the, uh, the flare bartender. Like I'm mm-hmm. always watching his Instagram. I was like, God damn it. That is not the kind of bartending I do. I find that to be so so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't think we're necessarily getting great old fashions from from that performance. But uh, but yeah, so Good I call show. a lot of the little stuff we do in in cocktail and cocktail bartending uh, micro flare. So so yeah, so you you muddle and then um, I usually put that disc bar spoon just there on the side, uh, kind of off the rim of the glass, and then uh, proceed to to add my two ounces of bourbon. Um, traditionally we, we use, uh, bourbon for our household mm-hmm. fashion, uh, at, at the varnish. And so I'll add the two ounces of bourbon and then I'll take that spoon again. And there's always a little bit of the paste that's left on the bottom of the disc. So I'll put that in first in, right. Mm-hmm. And I'll just make sure to get that all off. And then I'll, I'll so you're pouring it over in. there again. Yeah. These are, yeah. these are, these are the tips. Yeah, so pouring it over that again, just making sure that the disc got got saturated or got hit with the booze, so that the mm-hmm. any remaining paste is back in the drink. And then I'll stir that up without ice, just a mm-hmm. little bit, like three or four turns, just to kind of agitate it and get it together. Um, and then we move on to our block ice. So I know a lot of people are playing with freezing ice in their freezers, um, and that's great using silicon molds. Sometimes yeah. people are fortunate fortunate enough to live in a city that has an ice company. Um, we, I have one in Los Angeles called Penny Pound Ice. So we have mm-hmm. a, we have a retail store you can pick up block ice from. And so the important thing about this step is to make sure you've taken the block ice out of the freezer and let it come to temp. Um, right. Just so that when you gently, when you gently place it into the glass using the same bar spoon. So what you want to do is you want to put the same disc bar spoon now with the spoon side to the end of the glass, not like in to halfway, like on the glass, so that the stem is going across the uh, the top of the glass. And you put the ice on there, and then you gently layer the ice in. So it's almost like you're using a like kind of a, a lever, 
to get the ice in there so it doesn't splash up. Um, and the reason you've temped the ice is so that when it goes into this room temperature um, uh, solution of, of bourbon bitters, sugar, and, and a touch of club soda, it doesn't shatter. Right. Uh, because it's much prettier if you have uh, a rock of ice that hasn't, uh, you know, has, well, doesn't you have spent how those. many, how much, how many hours, not even just in the freezing process, but in the preparation process to, to get this thing completely clear, you don't want it to yeah. immediately shatter or crack down the middle. Well, let me tell you, Tim, you drink. just sounded like a chef because that's like respect your ingredients. You know, there's a whole lineage to when you, you know, pop open that oyster. You're like, it, mm -hmm. it just didn't show up here. There's a family that's harvesting oysters and they had to pick them and, and bag them and get them sent to you. Um, I love thinking about like that in every ingredient that you're using. It's like, it's yeah. not, there's so many hands that are a part of the process to get it to you, to this moment. And then really you have like, you know, we're not done with the drink yet, but we're mm -hmm. almost done. Like for like 15 seconds of, of customer contact, of serving. It's spent with, there's this whole, there's such a lineage of time and people involved in each of those ingredients. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, block ice. And at this point we've, we've got a really solid process and a great team and an awesome mm -hmm. factory. You know, so some weeks we're doing 80,000 individual units of ice. Jeez. Um, yeah, that's, there's a lot. I could do the whole math for you, but that's for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> and I should just of, say as well that, Again, this is another great part of Unvarnished. This is a part that I love because again, it reminded me also of my my chef days and just the, the process and how long that takes. So again, plugging the book here. No, thanks. So, for it. Yeah, there was a, it's great, a great chapter, a, and yeah. Oh, the the cold as ice chapter. Yeah, mm. that was a lot of it was a lot of fun to write, but I'll tell you, it was stressful because I'm not like a food scientist. So I was, uh, you know. I was referencing Dave Arnold's book. I was talking yeah. to Alex. I mean, you know, I understand using the ice, but, and my, uh, my scientific knowledge is, is, was, I'm a little more than basic, but still it's uh, it's a little nerve wracking when it comes to recipes and process. So yeah. when it came to recipes and process and ice, the story stuff, I love that was, was its own challenge, but you know, when you're going to put into print, this is how you do it. This is yeah. what it means. It's kind of stressful. Because you know it, you know it yourself because you do it, but then you're like, oh, somebody's going to, you know, is going to, is going to stick it to me if I don't get this yeah. right. So, so yeah, so the ice, you want to make sure that it's temped, lay it into the drink so it doesn't splash any of the liquid up. And then we do about seven to eight stirs. Um, I usually go clockwise uh, right at the end there. Um, I usually like to do a kind of a little lift. So if you, there's that block of ice in there and you get the spoon down to the bottom, you just do a little lift to like lift the ice up and gently place it back down in there. Do that once or twice. And then I pull right at the end, pull over a little bit of, um, uh, of the old fashioned liquid over the top of the ice nice. just to, to make it wet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then now you're on your garnishing part. And uh, that's in our house with the bourbon old fashioned, it's an orange peel. Mm -hmm. um, I know that some houses will do rabbit ears of, uh, of uh, a lemon and an orange peel. That's 
you know, by choice. I actually historically don't know what the rule is, mm-hmm. but um, we, with rye, if we do a rye old fashioned at, at, at the varnish, we'll do a rabbit ears, lemon and orange peel. Um, but for me, I love to use a, a yoked peeler. <laughs> it's just the way my hands work. I don't like the straight ones. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually know that that is one thing that in this industry, you're always going to cut yourself on the peeler. And so my relationship with the straight peelers has never been good. Uh, so much more control over the yoke peeler and control is important with, with, um, uh, the twist or peel because you want to, you want to get just, you don't want to get too much pith, mm-hmm. um, uh, on the bottom of, of that peel. And it can be challenging because sometimes you don't get the best oranges or the firmest oranges. And when they're not firm, they're a little lazy. So then yeah. they, you end up cutting into a lot of the pith, uh, it's in the book, but there's just such a great moment with Sasha that I, I always remember. And he was like, you want it? You kind of want it to look like the bottom of a Band-Aid. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody listening, but if you get if you get a peel just right, there'll be some pith, obviously, yeah. but enough where there's all these little dots of um, from from the peel, like I guess where where the uh, the uh, um, uh, when you would express the uh, the the oils, uh, kind mm-hmm. of the pores of the orange peel, so you can see like those those pores through the little bit of pith, and it kind of looks like a bandaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can and, jump into chef mode again here, or if if you'll allow me to, again that's the that's the beauty of an orange. An orange is not if you get some horribly sickly sweet orange juice, right? What you're not getting in that orange juice is citrus oil it's the bitterness a slight yeah. bitterness from the from from the pith you want those things because that's what the the whole orange is right it's not just yeah. the sweet juice and so i i was thinking about that when you were describing that there so i i, I wanted to add that if you you know if you yeah no i i love that and actually i think i think it's so great that you you come from a chef background because i think it, it it's just a these conversations as they go on in future episodes will be so much more dynamic mm-hmm. um you know, I think there's a symbiosis between bartenders and chefs. 100%. One for the simple fact of what Anthony Bourdain wrote is that the chef always wanted alcohol. So, you know, yep. us bartenders always wanted <laughs> And bartenders always want better food than, than the family meal. I mean, <laughs> exactly. who, who didn't, but... <laughs> who didn't, but, you know, we were, we were quote-unquote legal drug dealers with all those bottles behind <laughs> us. Um, so, yeah, so that is, it's super, super important. So that starts with making sure you have an orange that, that um, has the right firmness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, just getting a good relationship with, um, with the peeler. Mm-hmm. And so you take that, you get a long, like I like doing a long peel, um, think of it like a, a feather. And when you, after you've expressed it over the top of the drink and kind of rub the, the rim, which I do, I know there's a lot of schools of thought that say you just really need a little bit of oil and that's plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, you just take that peel and you, you twist it up a little bit and then put it into the drink in between the the um the side of the glass and the block of ice make it stand up kind of like mm-hmm. a long feather um the garnish is like the makeup on a beautiful woman some mm-hmm. italian bartender once told me that i was like that's a really beautiful way to think about it uh we drink with our eyes so mm-hmm. let's not be lazy with our garnishes mm-hmm. and when when you're expressing there and and are we talking insides the inside the glass or outside the glass um or the expressing over it but but when you're rubbing on the glass uh rubbing on the glass just just a little bit on the on the on the rim 
Mm -hmm. I just do a little bit on and nothing crazy. And it, mm -hmm. I don't have to, I don't go around and around and around by any means. Just a little, <laughs> kind of a little dash on one side and the other. And then I twist it up and I put it in the side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's it, not excessive. Like I'm not mm -hmm. rubbing this peel to death into the rim of the glass. Just, yeah. uh, just a nice little touch. Almost like if you put a little perfume, you know how women will put a little perfume right on each side of their neck. Mm -hmm. That's how I think about putting a little bit of oil on each side of the glass. So, A, I feel like Ryan Gosling right now, just sat here taking <laughs> it in. <you> know? <laughs> take it in, take it in. Re taking repeat, it all repeat, in. Repeat, repeat. B. But that was truly, just, to, just to, to, to echo, that was the coolest part about that experience. I mean, sure, mm. it's Ryan Gosling's, it's a Hollywood movie, but I think the lesson to really take here is that he cared so much about executing it the right way that he mm. studied. He studied mm. and he watched and he executed and, and you know, made, would make little mistakes. We would correct him. It wasn't just me. That's the coolest part is like the whole staff would like give him little pointers here and there. And we're talking about two cocktails. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's not so, a long scene as well. But um, No, it's not a long scene, but I really, really appreciated, I really appreciated the, the time and attention he took for that. Um, mm -hmm. And it just shows you that anybody that wants to make drinks needs to uh, apply and put in mm -hmm. that time. That whole thing with the the you know the iceberg, the tip, and what's below the sea and whatever. Anyway, exactly. we're getting into like motivational social media <laughs> rubbish here. So what I was going to say for B is I'm going to put my spirits and cocktail writer's hat on for a minute here and ask you one follow up question. And for this sure. may be a preference thing, or this may be a, a technical thing that you've clearly thought about. Um, so you mentioned you know your standard go to here is going to be bourbon. Feel free to list a brand or not, but, and I think this is something that's more modern too, right? But when it comes to mash bill, what are you thinking about? Are you, are you going, do you prefer a wheated, a high rye or, or anything else? Or is it more just like, I, this is the bourbon that I use and I like it because it turns out this way. Um, I, you know, I'm so open doing like a, a rye written household fashion can be a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but it's, that's a spicy meatball, you know? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I grew yeah. up <laughs> and by grew up, I mean, when I really started getting into the, the nitty gritty of process with Sasha and, and milk and honey over at little branch, I, I, um, we were using Elijah Craig, Elijah mm -hmm. Craig bourbon. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I actually offhand don't know the exact mash bill on that, but, um, I uh, I've always been such a fan, and I think I a believe, lot of people. I are. believe that's uh, I believe that's higher rye, but I've probably got that completely wrong. Uh, it's definitely not a wheated bourbon, so it leads me to no, believe it's not it's probably slightly. Yeah. I think it's it's more of a rye heavy, but I might be wrong. And if I am, please send hate mail podcast at blindfair.com. Um, <laughs> I mean, I won't hold that against you. I mean, you know, there's always the there's always the internets for that. Yeah. Um, but you know, another one that we've used if we're so Elijah Craig, I think is 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 lovely. It's beautiful. It's it's affordable. It's a great thing to have at home. Mm -hmm. um, if you are, and this is definitely a thing in bars, we need to be uh, cost conscious because we don't want to be charging people through the nose for drinks. But you know, there's a lot that goes into making drinks. So yeah, um, I, I'm a big fan, and we we're using it a lot. Is Evan Williams Bonded? Mm-hmm. We did a head-to-head -head with the Elijah Craig, and and uh, we did a blind taste test. And mm -hmm. uh, on one, on a couple particular occasions um, with certain people, it was really a flop between Elijah Craig and Evan Williams Bonded. So, well, you know, yeah, those we, are those are the same mash bills. 
Yeah, there you go. So there you go. I think, and I think it's just the the, the proof there, right? I think it was. Um, I think it was just the proof. So. Just the proof, and I personally, uh, I, I you know, it really it changes for so many things. I I I find the bonded. I find a hundred proof is is really the the sweet spot for me. But then you know that's that is the beauty of bourbon, and also where we are, where we've come in this time since the early aughts as we call them in the uk Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that's common here but like since the early aughts people care about these things now the information is out there it's not always a hundred percent confirmed but there's people that care so much about bourbon you can look it up and you can find the one that works for you and guess what here's the thing too right mash bells is only one thing you've got your yeast you've got your barrels you've got your aging environment so it's you know who's who, who's to know exactly what it is, but I, I think bourbon's in a is in a very good it's, place right now. Well, it's like that lineage thing. You know, there's so many hands and people and and um uh, and just expertise that go into um you know uh, whiskey now even more so than 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 before. So much attention on it, and I have to say that I do agree with the um with the higher proof because an old fashioned to me is like a cigar. Mm-hmm. Like right when you get it, it's not it's not in in the zone completely. Nope. You know, it needs it needs a little time to kind of to get mm-hmm. in there. Um, um, just like you know, you would you would puff a stogie for a little bit, and finally it gets down, and it's right it's right in it's right in the clutch position. You know, wow, when it hits, or 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 a glass of you know a glass of red wine or or white wine, right? Like yeah. you might want to start too cold, but when, once you hit that stride. My God. It's that relationship. That's the thing. It's like there's a relationship with that, with 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 drinks, and um, you know the the block ice. I I think you and I probably drink our old fashions a little faster than than maybe most people. So mm-hmm. having the higher proof <laughs> does allow that that ice to to melt just a little bit faster and and get into the uh, get into the pocket as as I'll say mm-hmm. uh, for premium enjoyment. <laughs> oh, actually, I hate that word. I don't know why I said premium, but premium. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving swift, swiftly on. Uh, no, so what else? What else about this drink? Uh, I, I think no. I think that's been an incredible rundown of the way that you approach it. I feel. I feel. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I feel like you're of the camp that this is the way that I approach it. People can have their own way. What's more important is maybe just why you're thinking about each thing, right? Uh, no, you have to do it this way. I'm sorry, everyone. Just fucking listen. Fuck I hope you. you've been fucking listening and do it this way. No, I, um, I'm not. I'm not. I, did you I'm invent? You, you invented the old fashioned, right? That's correct. I did. Actually, beautiful. you know what? We were doing um, with uh, some of my partners. We have um, these. Uh, we're putting together a deck for a project, and we have these. Uh, we have these joke bios, just mm-hmm. because we take our work seriously, but not ourselves. And so in mine, it says that I, I moved to L.A. and invented the old fashioned. And uh, I think it's pretty hilarious because um, obviously I did. And you should do it this way. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, I'm, I'm a creature of habit. Uh, I love process. I love, you know, I love consistency. And I am kind of an old, uh, like a dullard or an old salt when it comes to how I build out the bar, how I do the mise en place. Um, and the recipes that I've come to know and love. So this is just what I do in my house. And uh, I've had I've had numerous other old fashions, and they're usually really good when you can see and sense um, uh, real attention to process and detail. 
I mean, you've been to a bar where it's like, man, this is this is sloppy, and it's going to end up in the drink. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. Form form and form and function does have a huge effect on result. Mm-hmm. So one thing, and I guess I I could probably bring this up in any one of the episodes, but we've been talking about a lot about food, and I I think this will appeal to you. So I want to share something from again from cooking, which is. And here, here's the context for it. I told you I was watching a lot of people make very bad old fashions on YouTube last night. And mm-hmm. one of the things that made me immediately go, oh my God, that drink's going to taste terrible, was not even just looking at it, but hearing the ice in the glass with the liquid. And I'm like, no, that that ice is already too melted, right? That That's going to be a very oh, diluted drink. Like you can hear it. You don't even need to look at it. And it reminded me of the importance of sound and hearing in the kitchen. And and people never talk about that. Oh my God, dude. I so love that you're bringing this up because it is, it's like, we all have a spidey sense. Yes. Like there's, there's a sixth sense. I can walk into the varnish and I can tell you the three things that might not be right. The lights, the music, the temperature. If somebody is shaking and they, you know, their ice, uh, their rock of ice exploded before the drink was actually fully shaken you know it's all these it is sound so much of it is sound like i hate when bartenders slam their tins like at the top with another tin you're like why are you doing that just use the palm of your hand uh so sound is sound is very important (laughs) yeah no it's so true and and and, you know it tells you a lot about the bartender i think that the more you sit at a bar, you pick these things up too. You can learn the personality of your bartender, right? Like, does this guy care about the drink or does this guy care about what he looks like? Is he trying to be, you know, have, have we moved beyond micro flair? And Oh, yeah. Where it's like I always be, say everything bartender. needs to be intentional. Uh, for sure. It's like shake, don't shake pretty, shake hard. Like, especially mm-hmm. when young bartenders are learning how to use block eyes. I mean, you need to be careful because it's, it, it you can hurt yourself if you don't do it correctly. And, um, this is not a symposium on how to shake properly, but you know, I like if you're using block ice. You want the piston to be in the center of your body. So you have the most support, you know, like bring your shoulder blades down and just like kind of engage and, and use your, your abs. But that has a lot of intention and you can see, you can see it if a bartender is just trying to go like, Hey, look at me. Um, and that gets really old, really fast in my book. What's mm-hmm. really interesting is watching watching a bartender really in the zone and really paying attention to all the steps. And what's even more wild is if you go to a certain bar a lot and you'll see that like you'll watch a particular bartender, you'll be like, Oh shit. Um, Eric's getting slaughtered tonight. Mm-hmm. You know? So like, that's always really interesting to me to watch how, cause there's, you know, that bartender could like say, fuck it and walk out. They could yeah. just also say, fuck it and give, away free beers and shots and say, I'm not making drinks anymore. Mm -hmm. Or they can buckle down and figure out how to, you know, how to get out of the weeds. And you can really see some, some real organic, real behavior, uh, from those situations. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, like, just like you said, like sometimes somebody will just plop some ice into a glass. You're like, Ooh, yeah, that's a really wet ice. That's not going to make a good drink. And if they're making the drink for me, then I've got my head in my hands. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is well, my yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we know the bars and the moments where we should just order whiskey neat. I think that's up there with the best advice you've given out. Today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got some more for you. If you want. <laughs> well, that's a, 
that's actually a wonderful seg onto the final portion of this. And this is going to be a recurring final portion of the of the podcast because you know we've gotten to we've gotten to know a lot about the old fashioned with you. And I think we've gotten to know a good amount about yourself, but that might not always be the case when we're interviewing folks for this. I think there's definitely some more drinks out there that that require maybe um, more nerding out, as you say, in terms of ingredients or specs or whatnot. But the last segment of the show is really, yeah, to learn a little bit more about Eric Alperin, assuming unvarnished didn't exist. So I've got some, uh, I've got some <laughs> quick fire questions for you. You're doing a great job of plugging. You, you do, you've done a really spectacular job of plugging well, you told me, my You told book. me before the show that we were getting, you know, 100. Oh, yeah. Of, of course. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's coming. UPS. Don't, you got it. There's <laughs> that, a drop happening on the corner. That was the, this, false, uh, that was the false start we had earlier. <laughs> we'll make the edit. Um, okay. So quick fire questions to finish the show. And this is, uh, I, I'm sure I will say this again. I kind of want to say it every time. This is inspired by a wonderful British radio show called um, Desert Island Discs. Listen oh my to it. God. It's incredible. Oh my God, I love this. Desert Island Discs is one of my favorite. I can't tell you how many times I've laughed and cried listening to some of these oh, it's, uh, it's episodes. It's wonderful, right? So this, it's out the there. First I stole one I it from there. Okay, well, the, you stole from a very good place. The one thing I'm going to say <laughs> is that the first Desert Island Discs I listened to was Stephen Hawkins. Oh my God. And that was, it was soul crushing, beautiful. It was mind blowing. Amazing. It was heartbreaking, but mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. So yes, I'm so glad you were inspired by such yeah. a legacy so the, of the show. Yeah. This, so this last, last, last portion is, is, is inspired by that and let's not keep people waiting anymore. So a mm -hmm. couple of questions to, to get to know you. Um, and the first is, what would be the first bottle, whether it's a, a brand or general category, that makes it onto one of your bar programs? Oh, wow. Um, I would have to say, I mean, there's more than, I, I've got three in my mind right now. I'm going to say Ford's Gin, Evan Williams mm -hmm. Bonded, and Campari. Mm -hmm. And then shit, maybe I should throw a sweet vermouth in there so we can at least make a couple more cocktails. <laughs> but with that, I think with that, you're, you're pretty well set. You're pretty good to go. Um, yeah. which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Wow. Um, well, it's interesting because bartenders, we have these graded jiggers now that have from like half ounce all the way up to two and a half ounces. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny. It's like, if I'm traveling, even if I'm not traveling for work, I will keep a graded jigger in my, uh, in my dop kit. You know, you'll mm -hmm. be like toothpaste, toothbrush, clippers, razor, <laughs> jigger, what? Um, but I think what even more important than the graded jigger, because I can, you can always find like a, a one or two ounce pour if you were roped into being behind a bar. Um, but it's important for me to have a half ounce, three quarter ounce jigger mm -hmm. um, for those small, you know, those, uh, those, those small measurements. You don't want to mm -hmm. fuck those up, especially with certain modifiers. Mm -hmm. you, know, you do too much Benedictine and you're screwing up oh, a drink. Man. Yeah. Goodbye. Third question. What's yeah. the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? Wow. Well, um, when building a bar, uh, you're going to work with people or vendors that will only be two of these three qualities. And that's good, cheap, and fast. So you're only going to get two of those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so and I think that's good and fast. 
Yeah, or you know, good and cheap doesn't hurt. Good and cheap, yeah. But, no, um, yeah, but yeah. It's it's tough. No, to all get. three of the all three of them are positive. Sorry, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm sat all... here being like, which is the which is the odd one? I which is the one you don't? No, no. Of course, they're they're all. No, good, you but... can't. I mean, but but you'll never you'll never get all three. No, fair you enough. Just, it's just you want you get if you get good and cheap, it'll just take a really long time. Fourth question for you. Mm-hmm. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? It would be Dutch Kills in Long Island City. I'm sat here about one mile down the road from it and happy happen to know that they also care a hell of a lot about their ice too. Fantastic. Bar. Yeah, they sure do. I love that place. Really I, good bar. Yep. I love the owner too. He's a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And last question for you today, Eric. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? You know, this 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 question, because I've had a version of this before. It's like we all ask this of each other. What's your desert island cocktail? What's mm-hmm. the last thing you'd want to have? And uh, and it, it, it changes. It depends on the hour of the day or how I'm feeling. But today, I'm going to have to say that I'm at Dutch Kills, and I'm going to have Richard Bocato make me an American trilogy. Incredible. Which is, yeah, which if, for those of you that are listening, don't know, it's a, a cocktail that Richie and, and Mickey McIlroy came up with um, when they were at Milk and Honey. And it's an ounce of rye, an ounce of Applejack brandy, a one brown sugar cube, two dashes of orange bitters, a little bit of just a bar spoon of club soda uh, with an orange twist. So it's very much a, a uh, uh, an old-fashioned uh, variation. Mm-hmm. And Eric, before we finish, because you have heard of Desert Island Discs, I'm going to allow you to also choose the record that you're listening to at Dutch Kills while you're enjoying this drink. Oh, wow. Um, uh, it's, oh, my God. It's uh, it's Violator by Depeche Mode. That that could that would be my Desert Island disc. Um, really, the whole Island album. Cocktail. Yeah, it would be with my Desert Island cocktail. It would be uh, I mean, obviously, Personal Jesus is a is is only one of many awesome songs on that uh, on that album. Well, Eric. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, great way, I think. I hope to kick things off. And thank you so much for for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. I uh, I really appreciate you having me as the first guest. Here's to uh, here's to clinking to many more uh, episodes. Thank and you, very you know, much. when I write the second book, <clears throat> not happening, not happening. Um, maybe <laughs> it'll happen. Uh, I'd love to come back. We look forward to having you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, Go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. 
Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Brinberg, art director at Vinepair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. The right bourbon can elevate your next cocktail into an experience worth saving. So look for a brand that doesn't overlook the details and sets the standard for bourbon. That's not proof. It's truly the real deal. An authentic, classic line of American whiskies with proofs ranging from 100 to 120. Knob Creek is aged longer to produce a full flavor experience as rich and deep as its history. With every drop, you notice the attention to detail Knob Creek puts into its bourbon. So strive for a little more substance, because when you choose to go deeper, you'll find so much more to appreciate.